Well, good morning again. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Colossians in the New Testament. It's a small letter, uh, chapter 3. And so even navigate there using the table of contents. Or if you've got a phone or a uh, browser or something on the device, you can just Google Colossians uh, chapter 3, and it'll take you there to where you need to be. So uh, let's get our Bibles open to there. And while you're doing that, I want to remind you uh, just the summary of Colossians up to this point, because we've been studying it for several months. And so if you've missed out on the first part, this will catch you up to speed. If you were here last week, you heard this summary again last week, but it'll just kind of settle in and you'll, you'll see maybe the whole book more clearly. But Colossians in chapter 1 is where this, uh, this missionary... The Apostle Paul writes this letter and starts out in the first chapter acting like what I would call the head coach, where he's giving the big picture to the team, where he's saying, okay, guys, this is who we are. This is who Jesus is. This is who we are in Jesus. And it's like he's going, hey, whatever happens out there on the field, we know who we are. Okay, that's chapter one. He, he's saying the colossal truth, which is that Jesus is supreme over all things. But then in chapter two, he makes a little shift. And it's like he takes off the head coach hat and puts on the defensive coordinator hat, where he's warning the Colossian church about some of the attacks of their opponents that were attacks on their theology or their thoughts about God. These people didn't necessarily want Jesus to be supreme. They wanted to minimize Jesus. And that was a, a danger. In fact, it was a colossal mistake if the Colossians would have given in to that. This idea that Jesus has a place, but not the supreme place. And this was a common, uh, common, uh, um, uh, a common misconception among their culture. They thought Jesus was good, but he just sort of fit in with the rest of their life as a piece. But Paul's saying, no, Jesus is everything, or he's nothing. So don't fall into that trap. So he's been the head coach. He's been the defensive coordinator. Why not also become the offensive coordinator? Okay, so chapter three, it's like Paul puts on the offensive coordinator hat and he goes, okay, Colossians, I'm going to teach you now to take personal responsibility for colossal growth in Christ. You know who you are. You know what the enemy has to, is bringing against you. Now, here's where you can take personal responsibility for your growth in Christ. And we saw last week in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, how it's as if, as offensive coordinator, Paul's handing that church and us the playbook. And before we open the playbook, we take a good look at the cover. We see the team logo, right? We know who we are. We're on God's team, right? And it's got our name etched into the front because of faith in Jesus. We've been given that place. And it's sure you know, it's not going to be taken away from us. It's been given to us as a gift, and God securely holds it. And so we had to kind of just let that moment sink in a little bit, just holding the playbook going, wow, we are Christ's. He has chosen us. He has put us on his team. We're in his family, right? And we just kind of savored that moment to recognize who we are in Christ. And now in verses 5 through the end of the book, it's where we now open the playbook and we get to see what kind of practical things we can do to take responsibility for our growth in Jesus Christ. And so I want to read this passage to you. Yeah, I hope you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen with us from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. It says this, Therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, 
impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, there are a lot of strong words here. Chances are, when we read those lists, when we see those, some of those concepts, maybe your heart gets a little bit uh, convicted, pricked, I don't know, something like that. It's okay. Would you just keep tracking with us here? Because God's not against you. Remember, faith in Christ means you're on His team. And now we know we're not living for God's approval, but from God's approval. In fact, the most important word in this passage, has to be the word therefore. The very first word in these verses. Because it shows us that we have to build on the foundation of truth that's already been laid at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So we have died with Christ. It says, why would we any longer live in the elements of this world? Also, it says we've been raised with Christ into this new and eternal life. And so that's our current reality. So when we open the playbook, it's not because we need to perform for God. It's because God has already done the work on our behalf to bring us into a relationship with him. And that changes us. That stirs something. It makes us different from the inside out. If growth in Christ was optional, if the way of Jesus was optional, Jesus would not be supreme. But that's the message of Colossians over the whole course of the book is the reality that Jesus is the main thing. He is supreme. He can't just have a place. He must have the supreme place in our lives. And so we recognize that. We understand that his way, his instructions, his commands, they're not optional for Christians. Unfortunately, if you look around churches uh, all across America today and some parts of the world, you'll see a lot of people who you know, probably make you think that the way of Jesus is optional, that you can be a Christian and not actually follow him in his ways. But that's not true because Jesus is supreme. In fact, if, it, if he was not supreme and if it was not optional, or if it was optional for us to not necessarily choose his ways, what we would do, be doing here at all wouldn't be Christianity. We wouldn't be submitting our lives to him right? So we've got to recognize that. And what we're seeing in chapter 3 now is what God has already made a spiritual reality. He's now giving us to make a life reality, right? What has already been happening in our hearts, He wants us to live into that because He's shown us grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've received that by faith, that does something in us and makes us live differently. So verses 5 through 11 show us that to live into this new identity, to live into this spiritual reality, requires us to obliterate 
the life we had before Christ, which is the first command we see in this passage. Because of new life in Christ, sin must be put to death. It must be put to death. These are the words he uses in verse 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Now, this is not hyperbole. Paul's not just trying to, you know, make himself sound more important or make this idea or concept sound bigger than it really is. The, you know, what's really trying to do is, is say to treat sin as if it's already dead. I mean, that ought to be our response to sin, right? Because of what Jesus has already done. Treat sin as if it's already dead. Now, let me say this differently, but hopefully equally as strong as the Apostle Paul. What does it say about our faith if we give sin a more favorable treatment than God gave his son towards sin? What does it say about our faith if we give sin a more favorable treatment in our lives than God gave his son on behalf of our sin? Meaning, if Jesus died for our sin, which was required, why would we let sin live in us? That's what Paul's saying. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Every year, um, it seems that we try to plant something in a garden somewhere, whether it's like a flower bed or a vegetable garden. I don't know. This is just one of the things that I married into. And I didn't know that was going to happen, but it just seems like we do this every year. And uh, we start to plant things. And you know what happens immediately when you plant something in a garden? I've learned this over the years. The weeds come up. It's like right about the same time that things are supposed to be growing. Guess what? Weeds also grow. And you haven't seen them for several months. They've been lying dormant, right? But now here they are again. And they're attacking what you planted. They're trying to choke it out, trying to get rid of it, okay? And so what do we have to do? We have to go in and pick a weed every once in a while. Well, this is what we tend to do with sin. We tend to attempt to manage our sin just like we might tend to a garden picking weeds every once in a while. The reality of it is that sin has a root system that has been growing in us for much longer of a period of time than our new life in Christ has been growing in us. And if we just manage it by managing what comes out without ever dealing with what's on the inside, then it will always come back. It'll always attack our life in Christ. And so what Paul's saying here is, is, not, is to put to death. It's not just to manage your sin. It's to put it to death. It's to dig it up, uproot it, get every last little piece of that root and expose it. Because what happens when you pull a root system out of the dirt, right? It dies. The plants don't keep growing. So he's saying put it to death. He's saying that the death of sin is already a spiritual reality. Because of the work of, de- of Jesus' death and resurrection, but our work is to make that spiritual reality an everyday practice. That's what we're up to here. So what are these sins? Well, let's just talk specifically about these lists. Um, let me keep it kind of PG-related. Okay, so, but let's just talk honestly about them. So first one is sexual immorality. Verse 5. Now, there's a word you might recognize here in the original language that Paul wrote this letter, and so I want to just let you in on it. It's the word porneia, porneia. It's translated sexual immorality. 
Now, we have a word that's de- derived from that, and we add ography to the end, right? And it's all about images of sexual immorality. But what this word actually means, it's a bigger umbrella, okay? It's about all sexual activity that happens outside of God's good definition for sex, which is, according to the Bible, the healthy and holy and godly boundaries of marriage. So anything that happens outside of that uh, is an immorality, meaning that God actually created a morality, a sexual morality that's good. And so when we deviate from that, it becomes an immorality. And so there's a big umbrella about ways that are not biblical that we can engage in those actions that are sins that are deeply rooted within us, that have been growing in us for a long time and then express themselves through our lives. We can't just manage what comes out. We've got to work on what is on the inside, right? So anything outside of this morality that God created is a counterfeit. It's like fool's gold, right? Like it may look like the real thing, but it's worthless. So we've got to put it to death. The second one is impurity. Impurity, which you might go, I thought that was the same thing. Is that not the same thing? Well, it's under the same umbrella, okay? Impurity refers to a moral indecency, moral indecency. Have you ever heard the phrase, get your mind out of the gutter? I feel like my mom said that to me a lot when I was a kid, okay, so some of the stuff like that, or my friends. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what Paul's talking about, impurity. It's a moral indecency. It's what's happening on the inside that leads to what happens on the outside, okay? So we get our minds out of the gutter. And so uh, then we go on to lust. Lust is a, an uncontrolled desire. It's passion, but in the negative sense. Lust is when your mind takes what you see with your eyes and it begins to imagine something that's not real. So what happens, you take in through your eyes, your mind takes it and takes it to the next level, that's lust. And Paul says, put that to death. Similarly to lust is evil desires. Now this is when your heart or your mind long for something that's ungodly. Anything, anything that's ungodly. That's an evil desire. And then lastly, he says, greed. Now, greed is the opposite of contentment. It's this desire for more. And when we see it in this list, we recognize that it doesn't have to just be money. Jesus talked about money in terms of greed. But Paul seems to be lumping this in with this whole idea of sexual sin, that there's an unhealthy desire for more, that we can be swept away to think of it selfishly, rather than selflessly, that that can overtake us. And so uh, whether it's sexual or like money, like Jesus identifies, greed is a source of idolatry. Greed is idolatry. What does that mean? We've heard that word tossed around at church. We hear it, we see it in the Bible. We you know, talk about it in Sunday school, that kind of thing. But what exactly is it? Is it just a carved image, a big statue or an idol or whatever? Well, let me give you this definition. It's my, my friend Paul Coleman says this. He says, If you want something other than God, more than God, that thing is your God. So look at this list. Which ones still have roots inside of you? I mean, you may not have seen a weed for a while, but you haven't put to death. You haven't uprooted it. It's still lying dormant. If you can identify one, 
then the news from Paul is, unless you're willing to uproot it, to kill it, that thing may actually be your God. That's the truth here. So we're taking what's the spiritual reality, we're putting into the everyday practice. How do we do that? How do we do it? Well, let's just follow this analogy a little bit further. The weed's root has to stay buried to stay alive, right? If you pull the root out of the dirt, it dies. The same principle applies to sin. Sin wants to stay buried in your life. It wants to stay hidden. That's where it wants to live. It doesn't mind lying dormant for a while because it knows there will be an opportunity to come up and attack your growth in Christ. But sin that's uprooted through the honesty of what we call confession, though it may be painful for a moment, right, digging something up, there may be conflict in that for a moment, when we expose it, that sin will quickly die. That's what it means to put it to death. The things that are hidden deep in us, they've got to be exposed. We've got to bring them to the surface. We've got to start talking about them. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Here's the deal. If talking about sin remains taboo in church, the sin will remain. If talking about sin becomes the norm in church, the sin will die. That's what community's for. So we can thrive and live with Christ. So that's the what and the how. How about the why? Well, Paul gives us a really compelling reason why we need to put these things to death. Verse 6 says, Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And that's where most of us go, oh, okay, here we go. Now we're talking. This is where God's going to smite us. This is where he's going to come back and go, you didn't do a good enough job. So it's, I mean, it's on. I'm coming after you, right? But remember, that's not what we're talking about. We already understand our spiritual reality. Our position with God is that we've been rescued from our sin. We, have, we don't have to face the judgment of sin, right? Because of what Jesus did on the cross through his death and resurrection. This is good, good news. That means that we can freely expose our sin without the fear of judgment. Well, what does it mean then that God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient? There's two senses I want to just make you aware of here. The first is that verb is coming is in the present tense. It's a present tense verb, which you could actually even say that God's wrath is already coming or it's already here. It's happening. It's happening among us. You could think of it in this sense as if the natural consequences for your sins are being played out. You have to face consequences for choices you make, right? That could be what this is referring to. But the interesting thing is that the word here for wrath is a word that actually the New Testament typically uses to refer to God's long-term plan for judgment of sin, meaning that the judgment that will future happen in eternity is also what he's referring to. So yeah, it's the here and now, but it's also the future. So what does this mean? Well, it could be natural consequences. It could mean uh, that there's a reality uh, that Jesus has already done what's necessary to conquer sin. It could be referring to that. It could also be referring to the reality that no man can escape the consequences of sin on his own. 
No man can escape the consequences of sin on his own. But as the Bible teaches, we can be rescued from the consequences of sin through faith in Jesus by what he did for us. That's possible, which is why in verse 7, as we keep reading, Paul goes from present tense to even maybe thinking future tense to now going past tense when he talks about the Christians in Colossae. He says, and you once walked. You used to do this. You once walked in these things when you were living in them, which is to say you can have new life in Christ. Your life may need to take a turn from present tense to past tense so that you can be confident about your future tense. Okay? This is what Paul is saying. You can have new life in Christ. And this leads us to this second command. You once walked in these things. You were living in these things. Back to the present tense. But now, verse 8, now put away all the following. Because of new life in Christ, we must put away sin. Sin must be put away. Now, let's just stop on that phrase for a second. Because most of the time when we use that phrase, put away, we're talking about putting things back in order. Like just maybe just cleaning things up a little bit, right? Like, hey, put away your toys, kids, you know? Make sure that your backpack isn't laying in the hallway or your shoes aren't in the wrong room. or You know, just put things back in order, okay? Just neatly take care of things, okay? But Paul's actually, go figure, using a little bit stronger language than we might think. He's actually saying, cast off. Now, don't just tuck it away nice and tidy. He's saying, Cast these things off, as in taking off, you know, old, rotten, you know, ripped up clothes and putting on fresh clothes. That's what he's talking about. You can even see in verse 9, he says these two phrases, put on, put off, and put on, right? This is kind of the analogy that he's using. It's like when I was uh, playing soccer on Sunday nights and pickup games here in Marshall. We play this late game after we uh, put kids in bed, so it's mostly a bunch of washed up guys like me couple young bucks who, you know, running around us in circles. But uh, uh, we had this game. We played for a couple hours on Sunday nights. And I would come home about 10 p.m. just after an East Texas summer night, drenched, you know. Like, I'm not getting in bed like this. No way, no how. So I got to get cleaned up. But first things first, these clothes are going to have to get peeled off, if you know what I mean. Like, that's how bad it was, okay? So you got to peel these things off. And you lay them on the floor, and you're thinking, I'll probably deal with that tomorrow, right? But what would happen, just imagine this with me, if, uh, you know, I come home, I peel those clothes off, you know, get cleaned up a little bit, and then right before I get back in bed, I take those clothes up off the bathroom floor, and I put them back on before I, <laughs> right? Sick. But spiritually speaking, this is what we do when we refuse to put away these sins, to cast them off. We leave them comfortably within reach. We know they're there. We might think I'll deal with them tomorrow, but what happens when I walk in that room tomorrow? I'm looking at them again going, I can put that back on. And as gross as it sounds, that's what we do. That's what we do with these sins. 1 John 1.9 talks about how Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Yet, we reach right back for 
for those old clothes and put them back on. So to put away means to cast off, to leave the old life behind, to leave it far out of reach. So that's what that means, but what's he talking about? What kinds of sins? Okay, let's go through these again. Another list, verses 8 through 9. First, he starts off with anger. Now, here's what's interesting in this passage. The word anger in verse 8 is the same word used for wrath in verse 6. God's wrath. It's the same Greek word. Now, what's the difference? Well, number one is God is justified in his wrath. And we are not. Which is why it becomes a sin for us to have this kind of anger. Which is, by the way, like a long-term harboring of ill will. The best way I can think to describe this is if we've got any Cowboys fans in the room. Uh, Dallas Cowboys fans just like innately hate Philadelphia Eagle fans. I don't know why. Uh, I have a <laughs> we got one in the back. There you go. I don't know why. I can't explain it, right? But I got a cousin who's an Eagles fan, even though he grew up in Longview. I don't get it. My best friend's from Philadelphia. Uh, you know, I don't understand it. I'm not that much of a football fan. But it happens, okay? This is the kind of ill will long-term that you would harbor against somebody. And we're not talking about football. We're talking about life. This things happens in, these things happen in real life, okay? So that's the anger that Paul's talking about here. And then he says wrath. I'll talk about confusing. We got wrath in verse 6. We got anger, which is wrath in verse 8. And then the next word is wrath again. Well, it's a different word for wrath now. He uses a different word for wrath. And this one is like a sudden explosive anger. So this is like when you're watching the football game and, uh, and there's a penalty against your team, except it doesn't get called. And you go, oh, come on. You jump off off the couch. You're yelling at the TV. Come on, refs. I cannot believe that. And then the next thing you know, they, they just go on to the next play. Eventually, you just kind of sit back down and reach for the bag of chips again, right? And you're kind of over it. Like you have this sudden outburst, but then you sort of settle back in, okay? That's the kind of thing that we used to do before Christ, not just with football, but with real life. And now we have a new self. We move on. We, we put that away. We put on a new version and so that's wrath, our kind of wrath. Malice. Malice is when anger or hate are at work inside of you, prompting you to hurt somebody. It's not necessarily the act of it. It's the prompting. It's what's stirring on the inside. It might be, I wish I could say this to that person. Man, I could just get them back because I know that would get to them. I know it would get under their skin. That's malice. It doesn't have to be words, although in this context, we're talking about mostly what comes out of our mouths, but it can be other things. Malice, when anger or hate stir in you, prompting you to hurt someone. Slander. This is when you actually insult somebody with your words. You insult someone with your words. And then it says, filthy language from your mouth. Filthy language from your mouth. These are ways of shameful speech. This is being foul-mouthed. Um, I want you to just imagine for a second holding a balloon and a needle. What happens when you pop that balloon with that needle, right? It just lets out, immediately it lets out all the air. So here's the question for foul mouth. 
what do you let fly when you get pricked? Right? When something happens on the job site or in your car or with your family or wherever it is, and it just hits you wrong, what do you let fly? That's what it means to be, uh, have filthy language from your mouth. Now, lastly, verse 9, it says, Do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Did you notice that this one gets its own sentence? It's not just one of the list. Something's happening here. I actually designed this sermon around two commands. Put to death, put away. But there's a third command. It's an imperative verb here where Paul says, do not lie to one another. And I want to show you why. I want to show you why I think this is happening. So when Paul gets to this point, what he's thinking is, there are these Christians in Colossae. And they've got these remnants of the old life that they've got to put to death and put away. And I can just imagine the emotion coming up in his heart and mind as he writes this letter going, well, what they're doing is they're trying to live with one another, but they're not actually showing their true selves. They're just living a facade. It's like what Jesus would call a whitewashed tomb. He would say that about the Pharisees, right? This is what he's thinking. Paul's grieving this, okay? And so he's saying, do not lie to one another. Because when you have faith in Jesus, you're a part of God's family. And when God's family exists together as the church, it's, wow, mostly we try to live as if we don't even have sin. I mean, we show up on a Sunday morning and go, hey, how are you? How was your week? Oh, it was a great, it's a great week. It was a good time, you know, pretty good, pretty good. Hey, hey great. Hey, we'll see you next week. All right, have a good week. See you next week, you know. And we, what just happened? Was that real or not? Usually it's not. So Paul's going, don't lie to one another because if you live, exist together as a church, yet you live as if you have no sin, if sin remains comfortably within reach, that you can just throw it back on as soon as you leave here, you are lying to one another. And that grieved Paul. And so he gives it its own command. Don't lie to one another. Don't harbor these things in your heart. Don't let them live. Get them out. So how do we do this? Well, again, I mean, the best way to kill sin, to cast it off, is to be open and honest about it. It's a tragedy that the church today has been deceived into thinking we can't talk about our sin. Here's the unbelievable irony about it. I was in a, a group of guys talking about spiritual things on Thursday morning, and my friend Jared said this. I want you to see it, in fact, on the screen. I, get, I quoted it for you. He said, Christians today are expected to live perfect lives as if we don't need a Savior while simultaneously trying to convince other people they do need a Savior. Do you see the disparity in that? Where are we going if we keep hiding our sin from one another? What are we really living for? Is it Christ? No, because in Christ there's freedom. Freedom to expose sin. 
And not to find the anger of God, but do you know what? When you're in Christ, you find the kindness of God. In fact, the Bible says it's God's kindness that shows up first. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's a beautiful picture of who God is. When we hide sin, you know what happens? Our community dies. When we hide sin, our gospel influence dies. But when we're honest about sin, it's actually when we begin to live and thrive. That's a different picture of church than you probably came here and wanted to hear today. And I'm sorry, but this is the beautiful picture Jesus gives us. How is being open about sin an invitation for you that you would want? Being honest and open about your sin is an invitation for you to experience true freedom that Christ has already bought for you through his death on the cross. Being open and honest about your sin is also an invitation to others to see the real Jesus. The one who offers forgiveness. Not the one who's angry at people who do bad things and happy with people who do good things. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. See, God took the initiative to come to us to provide us a Savior. That's what Christmas is all about. So that we could put our faith and trust in Him and be made new again. Our sin could be totally forgiven, past, present, and future, so that we don't have to live under the power of sin. We now live under the power and freedom of Jesus. That's a joy-filled life. So as hard as it may be, the best thing we can do is uproot that sin, expose it to oxygen. Because a fire needs oxygen to live, right? You've got to blow some oxygen into fire. But did you know that when sin meets oxygen, it dies? When you speak your sin to someone else, that's the moment it really begins to die. So why would we do this? Well, three quick reasons. We'll wrap up. Number one comes from verse 9. After he says, don't lie to one another, he says, because since you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. A quick story, but just speaking of filthy language, when I was in junior high over in Hallsville, good old Hallsville, um, man, I cussed like a sailor, like it was bad, okay? And my brother is a few years older than me. He got in with a couple of his buddies who were going to church, and, and, uh, and they decided together they were going to have accountability to stop cussing and so I never knew about this until I'll tell you in a minute but they got together and they decided when one of the other ones cusses the other any of the others get to punch them just straight away like no warning nothing like if a cuss word flies the, uh, the fist is coming okay and uh so I don't know what's that so I'm walking down the street with my brother one day as a junior high kid and I'm probably trying to make him think I'm cool or something I don't know I'll let a little cuss word fly and whack I was like, what? I let another one out, you know, and whack again. And I'm like, you know, after a few times, I finally figure out what's going on. I'm like, what are you doing? And so he goes, it's accountability, man. (laughs) That's older brothers for you guys, by the way. Yeah, right. He just wanted to punch me, okay? So here's what I learned. Did I learn to stop cussing? Kind of. I learned to stop cussing around the wrong people. And that was the moment as a junior high kid that I learned how to live two lives. To be a Christian around some people 
and not around others. But that's not life with Jesus. That's not freedom. That's bondage. That's death. We don't want to live that way. Jesus is saying through Paul that when you have faith in him, you have an old self that's gone. It's dead and buried, just like Jesus was. And just like Jesus raised to new life on Easter Sunday, we are raised with him to a new life, a new self. This is the good news. We don't need to be living two lives. We just need to live into the spiritual reality that Jesus has already made possible and actual for us. The second reason we need to do this is because we're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our Creator. It's from verse 10. Let me just tell you the goal of the gospel of God, the goal in the gospel is not to make you a better person. It's not. It's to make you a new person. It's not to make bad people good, right? It's to make dead people live again. People, as Ephesians chapter 2 described as dead in sin, being granted not of their own effort, but of the grace of God being given a new life. This is the good news of Jesus. This is what the gospel is about. It's not to make you better. It's to remake you into the person he created you to be. This is what 2 Corinthians 5 says in verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. And I love that little phrase, and see, because we make the new visible by the way we live. So life with Christ, it's not about uh, just getting better. It's about recovering and pursuing God's original design for my life and for the world. And the good news is that one day Jesus will return to complete this with us in person. And there's hope in that. There's life in that. Last thing is this. You're part of something so much bigger than yourself. It seems like verse 11 just doesn't really fit. It gets, you know, talks about Greeks and Jews and religious stuff and ethnic stuff and socioeconomic stuff. And you go, what's this about? I thought this was all about the sin in my heart. Well, let me just explain it this way. The sins we've talked about here, sexual immorality, anger and such, these are sins that increase the divide between you and others. When you live in these things, it separates you not only from God, but from others. And what we see this happening in our world. Without Christ, this is how it plays out. Look around you at the world without Jesus. You see a growing divide. A growing divide between races and religions and cultures and socioeconomic statuses. It's not getting better. As much as people want it to be better, it's not getting better without Christ. Because Christ is the great unifier. Jesus is the only place. He's the only person where diversity and unity can perfectly exist together. That's what he's saying. He's saying to take your eyes off yourself, which causes a chasm between you and God and you and other people. And he's saying, take your eyes off yourself, put your eyes on eternity, on who God's made you to be, on your new creation, your new self, and live into that. And you know what you'll discover? You'll discover the joy of living in the greatest diversity of all, but also the greatest unity of all, which is in Christ, who is all and is in all. This is good news. 
And the incredible news you can't miss today is that you can have a new start with Jesus. You can have a new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Haley and the worship team are going to come back up and they're going to help us respond to God. And I want to give you two ways to respond this morning. Number one is, if you need a new start, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to be right at the back of the room this morning and I want to invite you to join me just for a minute or two and let me know that you're ready for a new start. I want to help you with that. The other way is you may have already had a new start, but you sense that there may be still some roots of sin in your life that every once in a while kind of poke up and you try to manage it, but it's time to put it to death, which means to uproot it. And that means confession. That means telling someone that you got sin in your life. That's hard. But that's where true life is. That's where community is built. That's where the gospel really makes sense and comes into fruition. And so I want to encourage you today, whether it's me or Chelsea, who's at the back, one of our ministers, would you just find someone and tell someone it's a safe place just to speak the sin that's been holding you back? Maybe it's a, somebody sitting next to you, a spouse or a friend, and you want to go, hey, look, I'm going out on a limb here, but I want to tell you what's going on with me for real. And just watch the life that comes from that. So here's how we can respond. They're going to lead us in a song. I'm going to head back to the back. We're going to have some ministers around. You can go to one of them, or you can talk to each other, or you can just sing with us. But make a response in your heart to God today. Let me lead us in prayer to kick us off. God, you're so good to us. You gave us Jesus when we didn't deserve it. You gave us a new life when we didn't need it. We didn't deserve it. We needed it. We didn't deserve it. I pray, God, that today people would find new life in Christ. People would experience the joy of community through uprooting sin. God, if there's anything on these lists from Colossians that someone's struggling with today, would you just give them courage to step up and go, that's my thing. I, gotta, I just got to put it to death. I need to put it away. God, we want to be a church that grows in community, but also grows with our gospel influence and just our knowledge of you and how the gospel is changing us and shaping us. So help us today, God, as we take these steps to grow. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like your son, we pray in his name.